auspicious call sheet where my goal is to share the behind the scenes of the entertainment industry and celebrate the people who make production possible. And today I have Bill Sindelar, who is in our business, is a legend. Oh. Uh, he's like one of those super famous people for us that we depend on all the time that the rest of the world doesn't know as well as you will in the near future. But we'll get to that, right? So how we know each other best is you work as the warm-up guy on the Connors. We actually know each other from the talk and then from many years ago, but we'll kind of get into that. I'll just start with, what's your official job title? Well, it would be called the audience warm-up. Okay. But that is misleading. Right. Let's see, back in the day, back in the day, they would literally just have a guy come out, talk for 10 or 15 minutes, and shoot all these shows. As time went on, it started taking longer to shoot shows. We're pretty good on the Connors, but you know, some shows take five hours. So you can't just have somebody go out there and talk for 15 minutes and then expect the audience to sit there for five hours. So, right. But yeah, no, I'm I'm officially the audience warm-up guy. I always say I'm the most famous person in the world, nobody knows. When you tell people that's what you do, what do people think a, a warm-up guy does? Well, a lot of times people will see me and call me the clap guy. I do not want to be known as the clap guy. Right, yeah. But uh, it's funny because some people, when they come to shows, they think that like I'm in charge of the show or I'm like the executive producer or stage manager because I'm doing all these things. And I was like, no, 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 I have a Jeep with dents in it. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of levels to it. And there's a lot of guys who do it that do stand up. And I just started to do that. You know, if you go to see someone do stand up, they're like, make me laugh. Whereas if they come to a TV show, they're not expecting you. Right. So it's fun because like for them, they're getting this whole other show or experience that is separate from what they came for. So if you're good at that, it really helps the show out or it could hurt the show if you're not good. Well, it, you're great <laughs> at it and it really helps our show, you know, and, and we'll get into a little bit of the schedule because you work a number of shows, you work a ton of stuff. You're one of the busiest guys I know in this business. But I think it's really interesting because I always would equate it to somewhere between being somewhere between being a stand-up, being a producer, and then being kind of the conductor that's job is to keep the train on time, right? And and no matter what different show you work on, that's kind of the thing is knowing what we're covering, where we're going, where the show is going, and then trying to figure out a way to keep everybody engaged and on track but within the framework of what's supposed to happen right it's the the heart the, the there's so many different layers to our job too it's not like just going up there and like oh be funny and that's what i try to explain to people because there's a good group of us that are really really good at the job and we make it look like we just wake up do it and go you know my job is to make up for everything that happened to people before they came on stage Right. And to get them to free and be like, it's okay to yell and clap and react. Because, you know, sometimes they come in and they're like, should we laugh? You know, people are nervous or scared. You know, they don't, they don't want to like interrupt. Or maybe they're just shy and have low energy themselves. I mean, you know, there's been some shows where the audiences are like, holy cow, we need to pull the energy back. And then there's audiences where, where I'll be like, this audience was so great, but they weren't as vocal like crazy. And right. people are like, that audience was good tonight. And I'll be like, oh my God, they were amazing. There's so many levels to it. People have different ideas what the experience is. Like people will come to one of my other shows and think, 
oh, they're gonna get a photo op with all the cast. They're gonna go walk around on stage. They're gonna get to meet people. They're gonna get autographs. They think it's this whole other, you know, they're gonna get to go backstage and eat craft service. <laughs> and then they come in and they're like, okay, you need to go sit up there. And you're like, well, wait, why do I have to sit up there? And then you have to make up for that stuff too. I mean, people wear hats and they're gonna be on camera and then we're like, you can't wear a hat. And I had one person like bawling the other day, well, the other day, back, back when I was working. I was like, you just can't wear it. Then they're gonna sit you up there. And they're like, I don't wanna sit up there. And I was like, I don't go to your house and tell you what to do or go to your job. It's hard because you're trying to be fun and be like, hey, but. Audiences come and I think people who've never been to a show don't understand, like an audience comes for a show, but they stand in line for a long time. Even if they have tickets, even VIP people have to get there early. And like have they're still at five, right? And they'll tell them they have to be in at one. Like yeah. even you know at the Connors, and then like if people show up late, and you're like, why do I have to be here so early? Well, we have to go through security, then we have to walk over, then we have to do. I mean, at the Voice, they make you park on the top level at Universal, and they shuttle you all the way down. I mean, it's a whole process. And when the show's done, you know, it's a two-hour show. It's done at seven o'clock another whole hour to get back on the trams, to get back up, like it's an event. And a lot of times people don't think about that. It could be 90 degrees out and then I, they come onto our soundstage and I have to make up for the fact that they've been standing outside for whenever their call time is at one, two o'clock. And, and people could have waited hours. And in, in our case, like on the Connors, we have kind of a set group that comes super early because they're dedicated and they wanna be there pretty much for every episode. For audience members, this is their first experience you're their first interaction. You're their first connection to the project, the show, and explaining the idea of what they think they're going to see versus what really is about to happen. Through it, you're kind of their guide, and your job is to kind of take everything that's happening in real time and communicate it to them, and then to pull them into certain things or to build them up, sometimes to calm them down, sometimes to get people to calm down. You know, doing the talk, doing an everyday talk show, then you add in a schedule where you're on the clock because you're live and you got to get people in and out of commercial breaks and you have to have a rhythm and they have to have the audience has to rise at certain points or clap at certain points and be in unison. And I mean, all of that becomes your job, right? I talk about two different shows. So it's like, I am so lucky to be on the Connors because A, it's like I grew up with the show, but we have such great, showrunners and writers wow. that like if we do another take i'm not up there going hey when we do a second pass of this because you know sometimes we'll do a take two three four times i don't have to go hey this line is funny make sure we laugh right right like and and you know the advantage of the connors is everybody comes and they're like oh my god there's the couch oh my gosh they're you know there's the the family and so it fulfills that already so that helps me immensely and they come in already knowing the story and then with the talk my warm-up is so different because like the connors is like a marathon like we start shooting at six most of the time we're done at nine nine fifteen maybe eight thirty but you know like that's a three three and a half hour marathon to, you know maintain that energy on the talk we're live for an hour and I've got to, I have to come in high energy, high peak, get them going and keep them going for the full hour. And part of the thing that makes that job hard there is I come out, we're having fun. I go over the topic. So, you know, so I don't want the audience to turn and be like, you know, who's Megan the Stallion? 
you know, who is a huge hip hop rapper right yep. now. But if I at least explain, you know, Megan the Stallion, and, and I kind of go over the topics, so that when the audience goes in, they're already aware of what the topics are. It's hard for me because we could come in with something that's funny, like Sharon Osbourne's in the news because she changed her hair, and it's a big fun topic. Or we come back in, and you're like, there was a, a school shooting. Right. And so that's the whole first seven to 12 minutes. And then we go to commercial break. You know, like you have to flip that switch and go through your bag of tricks and go, okay, how do I get this audience back? Because the next block is about whatever. Uh, Cooking segment or... Okay. Uh, sure. Or, right, or, or some kind of medical thing. Or, or, or we have a guest coming out right. who's there to promote their comedy. And you're like, you can't have the audience just be like, I can't believe there was another one. And, you know, there's, again, all those layers to it. So it's like, and, and then that can totally affect the show. So it's such a different vibe. That's why it's like, people will try to talk to me and during these shows and the Connors is a little more straightforward, but like on these talk shows or even like when I do the voice or these other shows, I have an earpiece and I'm listening to the booth. I'm listening to the show. I'm listening to the audience. I'm looking at the clock and there's like all these different things that like make you crazy for people right outside the industry mm -hmm. to understand the very huge dynamic difference of the way these schedules work and the way the shows work. So like on the Connors, you don't have an earpiece in. You pretty much interact with us at times directly. We do scenes a couple times, maybe, you know, two, three times. Now, if you're doing a new show or you're doing a show where they're much more methodical or long-winded in how they do things or do major rewrites, you might do a scene five, six, seven, eight times. Or you might be establishing brand new characters that the world has no idea and you have to kind of translate for them a show they've never seen before. I do a sitcom right now that it takes five hours to shoot, but it's a kid's show where the audience is on camera the whole time. And imagine sometimes our downtime is 45 minutes. Yeah. Kids. And the thing is people think, oh, a kid's show, it's all kids. I wish it was all kids, because if it was all kids, you know, the, the part of the, the thing with that is for every one kid, there's probably two adults. So the audience is over halfway adults. So you're trying to like entertain adults while entertaining kids. Right. And the adults to laugh at the fart poop jokes and not have everyone get caught up that it's our, we're four and a half hours in, we're on the last scene. And then they think, oh great, it's the last scene, but then it takes another half hour to shoot. Um, you know, like for the Connors, I read the, the, the script so I know coming in, like, is there backstory stuff I need to ask? Or like, our EP Bruce is a little specific on what he wants the audience to know sometimes. So like, I'll run stuff past them if I think it's, they need to know or whatever. But I also like to see everybody and say hi and, and kind of just get settled in. And then, you know, we're off and running at like six o'clock and, you know, two and a half, three hours there. The talk, you know, it's like biff, bam, boom. My call time's 9.30, we're done at 12. But it's every day, right? So I think that's one of those things too, schedule-wise. So Connors is, as a, as a multi-cam, is one day a week. The talk- yeah, for me, and then for you guys, it's five days, which is right. another thing that makes it hard for me because I don't want to just be a face that shows up because that kind of is what my job turns into. You yeah. know, where the talk, I get to know everybody. I mean, I know network people, you know, you're there, like you said, every day. And we've been on now for 10 years. Right. Whereas like on the Connors, 
what would we have last season 19 or 20 episodes yeah so i mean this yeah 20 that means so. they see me 19 or 20 days but you have been working five days a week right and, <laughs> and that's that shift right of the schedule so like from the actor side we work monday through friday but we're filming on friday or some work like wednesday to tuesday but you come in and you you do the audience show for that particular project for the talk you work every single day and it's that block nine to 11, you know, and, and you have to crank through and keep everybody up. Talk to me about like the schedule for say something like the voice. If we were in production, my schedule on Monday would be get to the talk at 9.30, do the talk from 11 to 12, head over to, to Universal. We would start loading the audience between 2.30, 3 o'clock. It's hard because like at that point, I don't wanna sit around because my energy's already up. Because right. if I sit around, then it kind of, so sometimes I just come home and I'll walk my dogs and just to kind of keep, but then I would end up leaving, you know, Universal. So I get there at like 2.30 because the audience loads between 2.30 and 3 o'clock, 3.15, depending. They're all inside by 4.15, but there's between 700 and 1,000 people. And then is that, you know, and if the show is live, we're live from 5 to 7. Now there's times where they'll do a pre-tape. So they might have Bruno Mars come in and they might have, you know, Dua Lipa come in and they'll have to shoot it before the show. So we'll actually start shooting at like three o'clock. So the audience, talk about the audience having a long day. You come in, you do a song with Bruno Mars, then they strike the set, then they re-put up, put up Dua Lipa set, then we do Dua Lipa, then they strike the set, then they set the set for the live show, then we do the live show, then we're done at seven o'clock. You know, it's, it's a really cool, I mean, it's such a different experience than the Connors. And, and right. that's a show where you have an earpiece and sometimes people react certain ways in the crowd and you have to kind of control people who try to get attention. And sometimes people look super serious and need a little pick me up and need to be encouraged or sometimes they're there with somebody who either performed great or didn't perform as well as they wanted. And they can't be standing in there looking like the negative person the whole time because they give away everything, right? And there's all these elements that come into play. It's funny because the Connors is such a different tired than the voice, but it's just different because it's, we're all sitting there, but you get to have this intimacy with, you know, 170 to 200 people where by the end of it, I always say this is a joke, but, I could know everybody's social security number, right? Yeah. Whereas on The Voice, you're like, how do you keep a thousand people going? If you, when you watch that show, I cue probably 90% of that applause. And I've been at The Voice since day one, so I know the beats of the show. I know when the coaches need to get cut off because we're running out of time. I mean, that's what's in my ear. I'm hearing when we're going to commercial break, how long commercial break is, when we're coming back. Oh my gosh, we have to cut this out because we're running over you know, or in my ear, hey, we're only gonna go to Blake and Kelly because we don't have enough time. It'll literally be like, we only have 30 seconds. We gotta wrap up Carson, we gotta wrap up Carson and I'll just start applause because otherwise we're not gonna get off air. So there's a lot of that stuff. That's why I say it's like, I'm not, it's not just like the Connors where I'm in, kind of enjoying the show and laughing and on The Voice, it's like, you know, again, there was, a, there was a show that we did like two seasons ago or three seasons ago where the first, 12 or 14 contestants, I can't remember how many we had at that time, every single one of them did a slow song. Every single one of them. So by the time we were three quarters of the way through the show, it was great because it didn't look like it on air, but the energy was so sucked out of the room. But like, imagine you're coming to this show and 
you're like, just give me a disco song. Just right. something my energy. But the rest of the time, the audience is standing there listening to this slow song. And it's not taking anything away from the artist because I feel like all of our artists on the show, and I'm not just saying this, I, I love The Voice because it's not a negative show. And the very first meeting I ever had with producers, they were like, we are not a booing show. We don't boo, we support artists. And that's why I always feel like we get really good contestants. That day was death for me. I mean, imagine you're like an hour and a half in and it's been all slow songs. Well, you gotta find a way to keep people engaged. I mean, it's like having melancholy songs for a long period of time is gonna bring energy down. And when audiences at home see it, you don't want people to think someone later didn't have the, the support that they should, right? I mean, listen, I already told you I was gonna talk a lot, so you can tell me if it's too much or not. But one of, the, one of the conversations I had with Pharrell was, because for me, especially just being an actor, you know, doing comedy and stuff, and you know this too, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I've got this line, it's gonna be awesome. And then you don't get the laugh on it. And you're like, oh my God, was it my delivery? Was it this, was it that? You know, and it could have been, they just didn't cut to it in the screens, right? And it was maybe something visual, you know, for the audience to see, which is why the audience is gonna react. Whereas like on The Voice, it's like, imagine you're like the third, you know, the 13th out of 14th contestant Everyone sang slow songs, and the audience just gives you like three claps and sits down. Pharrell had said to me once, he was like, hey man, I have a question for you. He's like, this audience cheers and claps and yells the same for all these people. He's like, do you just hear it different than us? Like, what is going on? And I told him, I'm like, well, that's what I tell the audience like to do. Right. He's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, it's a competition. I'm like, and sometimes people come out and they might be such amazing singers, and this has happened, where people just stand there and they're like, oh my gosh, this person's amazing. And they're not reacting because they're listening. But people forget when they come to a TV audience, and this is always the first thing I say, they're not there to watch a show, they're there to be live participants, and you watch shows at home. So when they come to these shows, they bring them to life. So if they just wanna sit there, they don't do anything for us. And on The Voice, it's the same way. Like, I actually make the audience stand for every song. By getting people up and down and moving all the time, the blood is flowing. They're moving. They're going to clap more. They're not going to be comfortable sitting in their chairs. See what I mean? I'm a little crazy. I, I probably overthink this stuff. No, but the truth you, is... People outside the business, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, on this is to share this, because I don't think people realize all of these jobs make these projects possible. You yeah. need somebody who keeps the energy. From the performer side, and you know as a performer, if someone isn't raising the level and raising the bar for the audience, it's very easy for it to kind of shrink down and fall or to miss something. For a show like The Voice, if you're a participant, right? And you're the 13th or 14th person who goes, if that audience doesn't rise to the occasion, it may cost you votes. It may cost you your ability to move you forward your head, psychologically. Up. Yep, I mean, you may think you're terrible. I, I really do think about that. I, you know, I, I always say I want the level, the playing field to be level for all these folks to come out. And again, I, I think about being that person up there. <laughs> I'm gonna go, I'll go back to my SeaWorld days when we would do, which we'll talk about. But when I used to work at SeaWorld, you know, we would do 12 shows, 10 to 12 shows on a Saturday. And you knew the A material. And all of a sudden you get to that like five, that 445 show where it's hot and the kids have been crying and screaming and you're out there and the A material isn't working. And you're like, it just worked for the first six shows. And it's like, then you get in your head 
And then it brings your performance down. It's a whole like crazy, uh, that's actually where, I mean, that was where my training started with all that. Well, I think, so this is funny because it's an interesting segue. So you and I actually met. The first time we met was, I don't know, 20 years okay. ago. We were both super young. But here's the, okay, so ready? So when you, I, I, because obviously I have plenty of time on my hand, I have told Michael, we met at, you tell your size. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut okay. you. Tell. So I used to do all of these press things. One of the opportunities I got, that you need to come into town to do press things and then you have some time in between or there's cross promotions. And they say, what do you want to do? And me being an animal lover and being into sports, those are the two things I always gravitate to. I go to Ohio. They say, you want to go to SeaWorld of Ohio? Absolutely. So we go and they say, hey, we, we have this great sea lion and otter show. And the guy's fantastic. And ironically, I show up to the sea lion otter show. You guys throw me in the show. And who's the host? <laughs> Bill's the host. So it's so funny because we did a few shows over the course of like a year or two, right? I came back a couple times. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, it was a good place to come if you had kids. So like Kevin Bacon came into town to shoot a movie and he was there with his family and kids. So he would bring them there on his day, you know, in his downtime. And so it's like, we would have folks come in, but not a lot, but you know, if a celebrity is coming to like Aurora, Ohio, you're like, so I literally was like, cause I've, we've talked about this since I've met you re-met you again when you would come to the talk years ago. So I'm like, I'm finally finding this picture because I've looked for it and looked for it. I'm like, I got the time now, I'm digging. Okay. So I went digging and digging <laughs> and digging. And guess what picture I find? This picture when I first met John. <laughs> See? But look, it's the Sea World. So I met John like in 95 when I was working at Sea World. Uh, we went to St. Louis to do a telethon to give a check and John was hosting it. And I thought it was funny. I'm like, I can't find the Michael Fishman picture, but I can find the John Goodman picture from 95. We originally met at SeaWorld of Ohio. And then the ironic thing is, you know, I walk into the talk, when the talk started, I wanted to go and support Sarah Gilbert and make sure she had support. Cause I knew it was kind of outside her comfort zone when she first started. Right, Sarah Gilbert's doing a talk show? Right. She doesn't talk. Yeah, well. She has to talk about herself? Yes. And, and she, she, you know, that's not her favorite topic. She, much easier for her to talk about stuff going on in the world. So I wanted to make sure that I came and there were some crew members uh, from the old show who worked on the show. And I remember I walk in and I'm like, hi, Bill. And, and we kind of did this whole, like, do you remember? Yeah, like, I remember. If you would have told me, I mean, I almost didn't get the talk. And then Sarah's like, I know that if you're there, I don't have to worry about the audience. Right. And she's like, would you be the warm-up guy? And I'm like, oh my God, for like one of my all-time favorite shows, you know, it blew my mind. And then the thing about Michael that you guys may or may not know is that he's very generous with audience members and with people, but with also crew people. And I mean, you're one of the nicest people I think I've ever worked with. Um, Thank you. Well, no, but I mean, you, 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 that's one reason why you actually have insight even to my job because you understand these audience members and you get to meet these people and you've helped people with experiences. And we had a, a, a really, really huge fan of the show pass away this past season. And Michael made sure the like took care of their family and friends. And we even put a picture, I say we, you put a picture of him on the refrigerator and it made it in an episode. And it was just like, 
you know, that stuff, people don't do that kind of stuff. So you're very rare yourself. So it's, I don't know, I guess maybe it was just meant to like, you're meant to work with certain people, I guess, huh? I agree. And, you know, for me, it's really important when the audience comes, especially doing a live show in front of an audience. I feel like when they bring great energy, everything rises, right? You know, a, a rising tide raises all ships. And we have a group of people who show up consistently and who are dedicated and devoted to the show. And I love meeting people and I love meeting people who send me social media messages or things that they're coming. But we have this group who has come and been incredibly supportive and, you know, they've been real supportive of me uh, through my interaction. And I try to make sure I shake people's hands on the way out and, and acknowledge people for coming. And then yeah, we how, had how many people do that? I mean, when I worked on Bonnie Hunt, Bonnie Hunt had a talk show. She's one of my favorite people in the world. Bonnie, even if we were running late, the show wasn't live, it was live to tape. But if we shot that show in our, in the, in, in it, I say live to tape, but we stopped. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it was an hour talk show that sometimes would take two, two and a half hours. She still made sure she shook every single audience person's hand because she understood like the whole process and right. them taking time out of their day and doing that stuff. And, that's why she had such a huge following and people, you know, but it's you doing that stuff too that makes that experience great for people. I always tell everyone, if you could just get people on the microphone one or two times just to say hi, to break that ice, that changes the whole audience's demeanor. Yeah, I try. Whenever you ask me, I try to, yeah. I try to jump in. And, and for me this year, you know, we had a group who comes. Uh, we have a couple people who come all the way from San Francisco every week, a couple people coming from Hemet, people driving a long way, really committed to supporting the show. To have one of them pass away that we really acknowledge and know and we're aware and are saddened by the loss. And then when they asked me to come to the memorial, I went to the memorial to go support the family. When we were there, I just felt like it would mean a lot to him that showed that we were aware of his presence, that he mattered. And I, you know, I want the audience to know that they matter. And then we posted his picture on the fridge. So for several episodes, he's on the fridge, his widow and his mom and his best friend all came to the show and then got to see him be a part of the show. I mean, he'll be part of it forever. Yeah. He'll be part of it forever. If you do this and you don't find ways to connect to people and make some kind of positive difference, then you kind of wasted this time, this opportunity. And so for me, that's what it really is about. And good people are good people. And, you know, I want to make sure that they get acknowledged and shared. As a warm-up guy, what's yep. the best part of your job? I mean, I moved out here to act, you know. Right. And if I'm not going to be on camera, I guess this would be the second best performing job you could have in the city. And I think for me, I've just been able to work on so much stuff that has been kind of like part of TV history, part of culture. So many great shows and some bad shows. Um, but I think meeting people, I've always been a people person. So, I mean, the best part of my job, I, I, I mean, would be the audience. Yeah. We're creating a memory for people that they'll have forever. But I just love making memories for people. I mean, you know, we had a lady at the Connors who couldn't get in. She flew in from Texas with her husband you know, and he offered $350 for someone to give up their seat for him, for her to get in, right. you know, because it meant that much to her and they came for the show and the show just happened to be packed that night, you know, and you're just like, she can have my seat. They're like, where are you going to sit? I'm like, I'll sit on the floor. Could you imagine her leaving and being like, I, and instead it turned into this great moment. And then I was given a prop that night from the show. And I can't remember what prop it was, but I, get, I found out like, 
who she was and I gave it to her. I mean, we've had people come from Israel, from Australia, from Germany. I mean, from Russia, from oh my China, God, I know. all over the world. They're the best, you know, the Germany folks. Were <laughs> yeah, and I think this is the performer in you and the performer in me is you want people to have a great experience. You want to put on a great show, but you want to make a memory that means something long-term. This, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you this story and I'll try to make it fast. Again, working at SeaWorld, I would do the pre-show, kind of a lot with what I do now. I would do some stuff for the night show, whatever, pick the guys, have the guys dance, all said and done, you know, whatever. I did that hundreds of times. Right. Up to, I'm working, I do warm up on Hannah Montana, that was my show, do a dance contest, show's over, these two girls run up to me and they're like, why did you pick our dad? And I was like, well, I'm like, well, because, I'm like, your dad has that face, because there is a method to casting people to dance, but, and he's like, I go, your dad just had that face. And they're like, he gets picked for this stuff all the time. And I was like, oh really? What else did your dad get picked for? And they're like, when we were growing up, we went to SeaWorld and he got picked to dance before the Sea Lion show. And I was like, really, where are you from? And they're like, we're from Cleveland. And I looked at them and I smiled and I'm like, um, I worked at SeaWorld in Cleveland and the mom's face dropped. She opened up her purse and she pulled out a picture of me and her husband. From, from, forever. from, from at that point, it was probably 10 years before, maybe seven to 10 years. And I was like, and everybody, we all just stood there. And the mom said that that day changed the dad's relationship with the kids because they saw him differently. Awesome. And she's like, we carry this picture around because we always make him dance and it's his embarrassing moment. And I think about that moment all the time because I'm like, I, I can't believe that it was, that it meant that much to them. Right. And their family that she even carried, not only did it change the family's relationship, but she carried a picture around in her purse and they make him dance now at like family reunions. So that was, that's why for me, I always try to, really think about the experience for the audience you know? right all right now what's the hardest part of your job there's a stress level that goes along with it i, I don't imagine there's people who don't realize i mean there'll be shows that i work on that i'm there consistently and someone will cover for me mm -hmm. and then it, it's just it's going to be different no matter what like i can cover for people and it's going to be different right and, you know people will say they'll like you know not ask the person to come back or think the person's bad and i was like they're like, well, they, they weren't clapping or they weren't reacting here. I'm like, well, that's because I do all that stuff. Like, it's just, so there's just a level of stress. And sometimes, you know, you're in, you're in TV and our AD always wears this button that says relax. It's just television. There'll be people screaming at me in my ear because somebody's chewing gum and they're behind like talent and something. Right. And I'm like, do you want, what do you want me to do? Like tap them on the shoulder? Like we're on live TV. I mean, I would, you know, I was working on Dancing with the Stars and I'm getting yelled at in my ear that somebody is on their cell phone and not paying attention. Well, that's always a fight on Dancing with the Stars because the whole floor is invited guests, right. whether celebrities or who they are. And so I look and it's Kim Kardashian. And I'm like, so do you want me to go yell at Kim Kardashian? Because she's probably tweeting that she's at the show and now you're going to get like a bump in the ratings. Right. But even so, you're like, these are those things that like, 
I'm worried about making sure I'm listening to the judges' scores to make sure that they're booing. You know, like, I mean, there's been shows I've been on where, not just Dancing with the Stars, there's another show where, you know, I got yelled at during the commercial break that the audience wasn't booing loud enough. So I guess really the hardest part of my job is I'm a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me because I feel like I've let people down if something doesn't happen, if right. that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. And people don't realize how big a role you have in really shaping and steering a show. It makes a giant difference having been on kind of all sides, having been on the production side, but also on the performer side. It's a world of difference. You know, it's every show is, is so different. When I did Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, I couldn't do some of the episodes and they brought in someone else and it didn't go well. But what people didn't realize is I, once I got the job, I did my homework on Jeff Foxworthy. I learned a bunch of Jeff jokes. I learned what Jeff's background was and what he liked. So when there was downtime, I would be like, man, Jeff, how about the Atlanta Braves? And he would be like, Bill, if they could win a game. And I was like, oh, I'm like, well, you did beat us in the World Series, you know, and, and but I would engage him because then he would turn and talk to the audience and talk baseball and then was having fun. And then he would yell at Dodger fans. So I knew it kept him in, in his game instead of going, why, why aren't we working? Right. We were having fun. So by the time they said we come back, he's in the middle of doing a, you might be a redneck joke and doesn't want to stop because the audience is in hysterics. I mean, listen, there's some talent that want to engage and other talent that are like, no. Yeah, everybody has their process. Yeah, you know. LL Cool J on Lip Sync Battle, like when that show started, if the D he wanted the DJ to play certain music or he'd call for a song and he would get up there and he would perform or get the audience going. And it was like, he, it kept his energy up. And it was awesome. You're like, oh, Cool J and Chrissy Teigen are like rapping and battling back and forth while we're waiting for them to set the stage. Awesome. It, was, it was cool. So yeah. yeah, so the worst, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stress that I don't think people know. And I, and I probably bring a lot of stress to myself because I also start getting the cold sweats. Like if we're like first seeing down at the Connors and the audience has been a little flat and you're like, okay, I can't have this vibe for the next two and a half hours. Right. Yeah, I gotta fix it, right? Oof. How long have you been in the entertainment industry? I mean, I've been, I've been out in LA now for 21 years. I started doing plays in second grade and quit doing it because my friends didn't do it. And my parents, I'm the one guy that's like, I wish you would have pressured me. Uh, my parents are like, okay, you don't have to do it. And then I didn't get back into it again until high school because I was just really didn't have any friends or anything. And I was kind of like, all right, well, forget it. I'm gonna make people like me and I'm gonna get involved. And I like performing. So I started doing the, I got into the TV class. So, I mean, I guess I've been in it since second grade with a little hiatus and then, but really once I got to like 11th, 12th grade, that's when I really got into it. And I had to decide whether I wanted to go to school to be a sportscaster or acting. And I went to school to be a sportscaster junior year. I'm like, oh, I want to perform and act and I'm moving to LA. What was the moment? Do you have a moment where you knew that this was the business you wanted to be in or that you saw a film, a project or something? You said, I want to do that. I was working at McDonald's in the drive-through. Okay. And it's like, I never, I mean, where I'm from, I'm from a city where 
I, I think like 60 to 70% is in poverty. You know, it's like I'm in a su from a suburb from Cleveland, but like where I grew up, you got a job when you were 18 or you went to college and you lived a mile from your family, you had retirement benefits, health, got married, and your life was laid out. So I, I never really seriously thought about moving or performing and making a living too, because it was Cleveland. But it was when I was working the drive through at McDonald's and I was just singing. I used to just have so much fun because a job is what you make of it, right? 100%. I one day was singing and a guy drove through and he goes, are you an actor? And I can't sing well, by the way. I was just being stupid. <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, yeah, I'm an actor. And he handed me his card and he's like, uh, he's like, give me a call on Monday. And it was the agency in Cleveland. And that's how I got my first agent. I wish it happened that way in LA, but, uh, but <laughs> no. But harder out here. <sighs> and here you can be unbelievably talented and struggle to find an agent. You know, it, it's again, it's being in Cleveland, it's big fish, small pond. Then you're out here and you realize all those big fish have now come in and we're all here. Life is who you know. I mean, even warm up. I mean, you know, I got into warm-up because of Wayne Brady. It can be so difficult. I mean, I remember the Roseanne show ended. I had an agent for a while. And then when I had kids, they kind of weren't interested in me because they thought that was like the first sign I was going to like spin out or whatever, like every other child star. Right. So my, my old agent dropped me. I had a series of kind of smaller agents because I was looking for somebody who was really hungry. He was hungry like I was. And then I really... You have to change your image too because you're the squeaky clean kid who does magic on the sitcom that went 11 seasons right 10 seasons you know and then now you have to try to figure out how do you transition into the next thing i'm a guy who's worked construction and you know i've, I've worked a lot of tougher jobs you know you you saw me through the years too in the in-between times on the talk where i'd come visit and you're like you're doing what for work or would perceive me to be as dj it's a lot different. You know, my life has been a lot more varied and a lot more diverse than I think people realize. And that's okay. I mean, all of that adds depth that when the right opportunity comes, it's just another thing to draw from. We all have to take jobs sometimes and do things that we don't want to do just to get oh, yeah. I mean, I always tell people, I mean, I work construction. Uh, I ran a warehouse. I mean, I, I've done a lot of jobs. But now look, you can fix your house and I can't fix mine. You can come over here and do electrical. <laughs> you can... <laughs> Yeah, I know just enough to be dangerous for everyone, including myself. But <laughs> but you let me know when when things get sorted out. If you need a hand, you let me know. You know, you're one of the people to me. I see so clearly how many things you do, and maybe it's also because I've worked in so many different departments in the business. You know, I used to do segment producing on a talk show, and I had people in my ear the same as you have people in yours. People have no idea how complex that is to do all those things at the same time, and then. And with a smile on your face. Yeah. And make it work on camera, right? What's what's the dream? I know you write. I know you're talented. I yeah, I mean, like, I haven't, listen, I've, I'll probably never give up the dream of wanting to, like, you know, I still haven't even uh, a co-star role or a guest star role on a, on a sitcom in all the time I've been here. But, I mean, I moved out here to act and to host. I just started writing, and I just finished a script literally probably, like, three hours ago. My writing partner and I have finished a cartoon. I just uh, finished doing stand-up. Uh, I've taken a stand-up class and I took a writing class because I have another pilot that I'm trying to flush out. And I got to pitch my show to a CBS executive Tuesday. Awesome. I probably have a good 30 minutes of, st of stand-up now. Doing stand-up, right? I did a little bit of stand-up 
when Dave Chappelle says it's a lot like being a gladiator, you stand out there and it, and it's all in and it's all at once. I learned early from Roseanne, you got to have thick skin because it doesn't matter how good you are, you're going to have nights where the audience maybe had a rough day and there's a collective groan in the audience or your material doesn't connect with them your style just doesn't fit that group and then somebody else goes up and has the night of their life and it really is about you know not just being great tonight but coming back over and over again stepping up going out being bold first of all you are funny so let let me support you in that way you got to keep going right you just have to you have to keep taking the stage Tim Allen got booed off the stage the very first. I always think of that when he talks about his stand-up. He got booed the first time he ever did stand-up and got booed off stage. Imagine if he would have just been like, okay, I guess I'm not good. Right. And never went back. I mean, this is a guy who has had one iconic show. His other show is a big hit and will be on for probably, you know, it's what, eight seasons now. And, you know, the more personal it is, the funnier it is. But, you know, a lot of my material is about, like, being gay and, trying to grow up that way and how parents find out. And, and when I went out there, imagine the whole front row is gray haired ladies. And I'm talking about gay things yeah. and they're just looking at you. And I'm yeah. like, oh my gosh, you know? I mean, <laughs> there's so many talented people that we work with that just need a break or who I want to work with and give them a chance. Now, I always say the same thing as, as I pitch projects and, you know, we pitch all this stuff, me and my writing partner. Since 1988, when I was six years old, I have kept every cast and crew list. I circle names and I keep track of people and are talented in ways that other people haven't seen them yet or haven't gotten the opportunities. My goal is to be an opportunity for people. Build the shows and projects that I want to see, then to bring other good people along. It's not enough to just kind of make something and have it be done. For me, it's about, can you bring people along? Because I've watched the dream come true for so many people. Like I've watched the people who started out as the assistants who are now huge executives and have made shows, you know, that's the benefit of being around for 30 years is you watch people's dream. I remember when George Clooney was a extra guy on our show that there were producers who weren't kind to him and he never let it affect him and always just carried himself the right way. And there were people who told him he wasn't going to make it. And now those same people are doing everything they can to try and call him and beg him to be in something, right? The same people you meet on the way up are the same people you meet on the way down. Absolutely. Part of the beginning of your process, you knew Wayne Brady, which is kind of what led you towards warm-up. Yep. I, I moved to LA in 97. I freaked out and moved back to Cleveland. And the minute I got back to Cleveland, I was like, okay, I'm moving back to LA in a year. I just have to figure stuff out. Right. Not just, it wasn't just a, well, it was sexuality too, but I just wasn't prepared to cut the cord yet. When I worked out here in 97, I worked at Halloween Horror Nights. I was a, I was a clown, but I showed up. I had the scare of the year. I scared Michael Jackson. And they told me that I did because security grabbed me and held me back. And Michael Jackson said I was his favorite part. So that's my Michael Jackson claim to fame. But um, I had mentioned to my boss I wanted to host the Nickelodeon show in the park. And she's like, oh, well, we're not having auditions, but I'll keep you in mind. Whatever. Move back to, move back to Cleveland. Come back out a year later. I, get, I take a job as a tour guide. And then I'm in line to get my check because at Universal, they gave you your check or they would mail it at the end of the week. 
this girl walks by and goes to get a soda. And I'm like, Kelly? And she's like, Bill, what are you doing here? I thought you moved. I'm like, I did. She goes, wait, didn't you want to be uh, auditioned for the Nickelodeon show? I was like, yeah, how do you remember? She goes, we're having auditions tomorrow. I went and auditioned. There was like 500 people that showed up. I auditioned and two people got it, me and this other guy. So then I'm, I actually started it, that Nickelodeon show and I replaced Wayne Brady because Wayne had just gotten Who's Line and Wayne's, friends and fam, uh, friend, Wayne's wife and friends still work there. So because of that, we all kind of became friends. And then I did his variety show and right after that he got his talk show. And then while I was doing his talk show, one day I'm doing warm up and all these guys in suits came down and they were staring at me, watching me do warm up because Survivor was shooting on the next soundstage. So like Wayne was on this one, Survivor was here. That those people that were all standing there included Mark Burnett. And Mark Burnett was like, I have to have that guy on my show. And then that's how I met Mark Burnett. And then that's why I've done all of Mark Burnett's shows ever since then. And then, you know, it's just, you know, it snowballs. And I was kind of doing warm up a little different from other guys because I didn't really, I knew how to do the job, but didn't know how to do the job. I kind of just developed my own thing. And then one show I was doing, people were like, well, why isn't the audience clapping? And I was like, I don't know. Well, I'm going to tell them to clap. So then that's when I just started doing more coaching of the audience during the show. I guess a lot of people weren't doing it at that time. I, I don't know. And then at that point, I, I was like, I'm never going to lose a job because the audience isn't clapping. Like if they should be clapping to the beat of this song, then I'm going to get them to clap to the beat of the song and stand and dance. I'm not going to expect them to do it on their own. And that kind of goes back to the original point of the job, letting the audience know that they have that freedom to participate and to really get involved. What is the most memorable project you've worked on? I'll A and B it. Okay. It would be Grease Live in Hannah, Montana. For the simple reasons of Grease is my all-time favorite thing in the world. I mean, there's my phone <laughs> case. Um, such a magical experience to do, first off, for me to be able to do Grease, then to do it live, and then to do it with Tommy Kale, who had just won the Tony for directing Hamilton. He brought all his friends from Hamilton. We all want to feel important in our work. And this was one of those times where the audience is going to be on camera. We need you here for this whole rehearsal process. So like they brought me in, they asked my opinion. I had notes. I brought up stuff that they didn't know. To be honest, I, I might've gotten a little too involved, but you know, they, well, it's because, you know, you have TV people that used to do it. And then this whole theatrical side that's not used to it. The whole thing was mad, like crazy because the night we went live, it was raining and the fire mar and windy and the fire marshal wasn't going to let us have audience members on the lot and they were re they were re-choreographing the whole show like literally an hour and a half before we were supposed to do it 2 hours Insane. and like i it started to clear up and the producers are like we're going to probably bring them up here and go so in my head i'm like well that can't happen because i need to give them do warm up so i literally sprinted across the street Cross Forest Lawn, ran into the parking structure, jumped up on a park bench, and was like, everybody, this is what's about to go down. I kind of rallied the troops. We got them all in. We actually got them in early enough that I was able to do warm up because uh, we had three different sound stages where the audiences were, three different areas. So they put me on camera to do warm up. And it was awesome because at the end of the night, 
a Fox executive came up to me and he was like, dude, you had people in the trailer cheering and you got them hyped up. He goes, you set the tone for the night, which was crazy because I was crapping my pants because of how much Greece meant to me. It was live, all these people. There were so many amazing people that pulled that show off, but it was so much fun. I, I even watch it every year on the anniversary. And then Hannah Montana, just because we defined a generation of people, you know, and to have that influence and like have little girls actually meet Miley and they would like, you know, pee their pants. And I don't say that to be funny. That's no, real. You know what I mean? Like, it's real. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, there's the Connors couch. Oh my God, Miley, Hannah Montana is standing here and she's not, she's real. Right. So the fact that you were able to do like positive TV for kids and define that generation. And it was, that was a really kind of like awesome moment. Most of the people I'm friends with and a lot of the connections I made were all from Hannah Montana. They actually kind of shaped my LA life. What's some of the strangest things you've seen without getting anybody into too much trouble, some strange things or experience, especially dealing with the audience. Cause you never know what you're going to get. Oh, I mean, I've been on shows where audience members have had seizures and literally a producer will come out and be like, well, can't we just move them? We got to get going, you, you know? And you're like, um, no, right. you can't. And, you know, to get into the head of that producer, you know, they're just stressed out because they have stuff to do. Yeah, there's yeah. a thousand people. I'm definitely not and... defending that moment because right. I was like, you're an, you're an asshole. Well, <laughs> But it's. I was a rescue diver and I did a couple productions. We rescued somebody who had a very serious life threatening situation. And I'm in the water. I have to go in, drag this person out. And they're like, Are they okay? I think, Yeah, I think they are going to be okay, but we need to go through the steps or whatever. And they're like, Yeah, but I got like 5,000 people and we literally are going to lose this space yes. in 45 yes. minutes. And you're like, well, maybe you should have produced it better so we weren't up against the clock. Right. That's and I'm like, a lot of like, conversation. Right. Like, sometimes people lose themselves. Once they realize that the person in their mind wasn't life-threatening, then it became back to business, right? And you're just like, you're not my style of human being. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, but okay. Now, this, I mean, you know, there's, I mean, I did a show one time. We had a fire and had to evacuate the stage. Oh. And it wasn't even a fire on stage. It was a small fire in a garbage dumpster, but you know, with all those people and it was, but we had, a, and this all happened on the same day. Oh, well, let me take it back. Heath Ledger had passed away. The lot was on lockdown because A-list people were there for the funeral on a soundstage. So we had to plan our schedule around his, all these people, cause it was a crazy day. That was the show, it ran late. We had a fire. So we have to evacuate people. And here's like all these A-list people out there, right? And limos and everything, right? Finally, then we get back inside. Then we have an audience member, a seizure. Then I have an audience member, audience members start fighting because we were shooting. It took so long because already at this point though, I handed out candy and audience members started fighting because some audience members took more candy than others like fist fighting to where we had to have security come. Oh. And they set up one of the games and it kept shorting out. And they're like, well, that's okay. We'll just use two of the three. One of the discs wasn't working. They're like, we'll just go with it. Then right. they found out that there was electricity going through the slime and they literally were starting the game. So they had to stop everything. And then, I mean, that, that was a crazy day. 
<laughs> so much. I mean, I've been at shows where stalkers have come down steps and try to get to talent. Um, that's happened several times, which is going back now to what we originally were talking about. It's hard because I'm trying to make this experience. I'm trying to break that wall right. between TV and experience while giving them the best experience they can have and get as close as they can to the show. And it's crap like that, which is why. It's I why mean, security's there and it's why sometimes you don't want, I'm even advised sometimes, yeah, you're a little too close at times. And, but I'll give you the example, you know, from my experience, you know, we filmed a show one night and had a bomb scare and had to evacuate the building and have bomb sniffing dogs and all this stuff. And was that 9-11? No, that were, I'm talking early 90s. That was post-national anthem. Got it. Just angry. Yep, I get it. We had the SWAT team. We had the bomb squad. We have fire trucks, everything. You pull everybody outside, have to clear the sound stage, and then you find out that there's no bomb. And now everybody's got to go back to work and we got to finish filming this episode. Or did they miss it? Right. Well, so, and then, <laughs> then they're like, well, we, we're going to take one more sweep and then we got to get everybody back in and then get back into a rhythm and go do this and finish the night of work. And I, I mean, in those days I was a kid, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, when you, it's like, my life is clearly not the one you would use as the example for people because it's so abnormal. Those are things that you go through as a kid. Like, so from my perspective, some of these things that I, that people oh, yeah, think you're like you insane. Don't know what's going on. Well, I did. I was super. No, but I mean, like, you're like, oh my gosh, someone's doing this thing. You know, it's like, how do you separate that as a kid? Yeah. And from, then it's time to go back to work. And yeah. Go yeah. Go make people laugh. I've, I've been in that, because I was asking, because post 9-11, we had a bomb. I was on a show and someone from the soundstage called in the bomb threat. They picked up the phone on the soundstage and said they planted the bomb. Wow. And for some reason on this soundstage and in this area, they didn't have security cameras. So they didn't even know who did it. Some of the people are obsessive. Some of the people are not mentally healthy. You know, there's a lot of great people and I've met so many great people. Oh yeah, but again, it just goes back to that one don't know. I mean, we, I, I did a show one time where Rod Stewart was the guest, the, actual, the guest, right? And there was a guy in the audience that looked exactly like Rod Stewart. So of course everybody's talking about him right. and I'm talking about him and I'm joking and everything. He come, Rod Stewart comes out. Of course, the first thing the host does is goes, Oh, look, Rod Stewart. There's a Rod Stewart. You know, this guy's a big fan. Right. right. We do the interview. The interview is done and we go to commercial and Rod takes off, you know, and sometimes that happens. You get up like, it wasn't live, so they might go to the restroom or they do whatever. I mean, I wasn't paying attention. Right. Come to find out that that guy is a stalker and he has a restraining order against him. And, and not to, you know, here's the other thing. That's the other part of my job that's tough. Because you have fans and people that you want them to have that experience. I have a split second to figure out who they are. Right. Because this happened to me on a, another talk show Two fans came, they had like dolls of the host, all that stuff, so funny. And this happened to me early in my career, which is why I wouldn't point it out now. Right. But I was like, oh, look how awesome. And then the host pulled me aside during a break and said, they're my stalkers, they shouldn't be in here. I don't wanna make a scene, please don't talk to them and keep an eye on them. And you're like, oh my God, okay. 99.9% .9 of the people are innocent, but it's that one person. Now, shifting gears, 
Yeah. Okay. What project, if you could go back, what project would you want to go back to knowing what you know now? I would go back to my audition for American Idol. <laughs> I know that's not really what you asked, but I would go back to it 100%. Okay. So you auditioned for American Idol. I, well, when I first moved out here, I wanted to be, one of my focuses was being a VJ because I love music. When I did this, when I came out here, I used to go into MTV all the time. But my energy, I was, and because that was working, that's how I did it. So my energy was like, hey guys, what's up? Welcome to MTV, Total West Live, I'm here. And, right, and like not, but more of like the, that MTV style. I was supposed to replace Carson Daly on TRL, and then they stopped returning calls to my agent. Oh, weird. It's a, I don't know what the hell happened still to this day. Okay. That's a whole other story, but that was around the same time too, the idol had come out, and I got, I made it to the top 10 of hosts. I had watched, uh, what was it called, Pop Idol, the original show. Right. And the guys that did it were very kind of high energy. They used to do sketches and stuff. That's kind of the vibe that I kept it. But when I look back on it, I wish I would have totally just gone right into host mode. Okay. Now, of course, I probably got that far because I was that, hey, guys, welcome to American Idol. It's the top 10. Rather right. than being like, welcome to American Idol. Here are your top 10. So that's the one thing I wish. Just because okay. you do that and I'm like, I'm like, oh man. And then the funny thing is to get a call to be like, hey, we have a show we want you to do warm up on. You're like, cool. And then you're like doing warm up for American Idol. And you're like, awesome. <laughs> That's how this business works, right? Cool. The, well, the worst, one, like right the worst one ever for me is I basically, and, 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 and this is probably another project too. This was close to the same time. Someone watched me doing warm up. And then one day took me to lunch and totally picked my brain about why I do certain things and how I do it, a network executive. Next thing I know, I get called in to be a, a host to run through the show as they're trying to create it. Okay. And it's with this executive. So I'm in there and we're talking, my lines, this whole thing. And then next thing I know, I sign a contract to test to host it because I'd done everything. And I was told by several people you're going to get this show then i did not get it because they had a development deal with another guy at that time that they wanted to plug him in right but the thing was the show it's no offense to this guy because he's a really great host and he still works now but it lost that kind of charm fun improv -y, like what i do right so he well, was up there reading my words. Right, he's trying to be you. And it wasn't and, working. And I don't mean it to be bad, but no. it happens. It, 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 they it, had a deal with someone and they tried to honor their deal through this project and he tried to do your setup. And so I get a call, but this, the crazy thing about this was I get a call to work on, on a show, whatever the show. And a lot of times I ask or we'll talk about it and whatever. And, and I, for some reason for this show, I just didn't think to ask or I didn't put it together. And I show up and it's this show. And they're like, we're so glad we got you here. And I'm like, had I known it was the show, I never would have come. Because yeah. part of the problem that I have with my job is people now just see me as the warm-up guy. Whereas like when my job first came out, people 
or not my job, my first came out. My job back in the day was meant as like a training ground or people broke out of that. Um, Bob Saget was a warm-up guy. D.L. Hughley, you know, uh, Steve Harvey, Nick Cannon, all these people were warm-up guys. Yep. Whereas now to get an opportunity, you're kind of like someone like me, I'd have to jump through hoops, prove I can read off a teleprompter or write spec scripts. And then if I was like a Kardashian, they'd be like, oh, we got her. And they don't even, I'm out there doing warm-up on shows. And then you've got people who can't even read the teleprompter. Yeah, so the American Idol was one of those auditions that you like wish you had back. And Ryan kind of being the fun, really good host, like he's he's very good at that thing. Right. And I would really like to have just been the funny sidekick that worked yeah, along with him. You feel like you could really fit and vibe in that situation. Yeah. You know, you have these paths and then, you know, whatever you believe in God, whatever you believe in laughs, and then you go on another path, right? Because I know how talented you are kind of as a host, a performer, uh, engaging people real time, and I know you're writing because we talk about it. What's the dream job? At this point, the dream job would be two of the things I've worked on. One is a young adult, and when I say young adult, probably like 16. Josh Dumel came on the talk, and he was promoting this movie called Love, Simon. And I saw the clips for it, and I was like, well, this sounds like a movie I'd be interested in. I'm like, I'm going to go see it. And then it kind of actually changed my whole, it, it, it had a crazy influence on me. And if my friends are here or if they're watching this, they're going to laugh and be like, you're obsessed with it. It was this coming of age story about this gay guy, but it wasn't a show about struggle. When I was growing up, I didn't have any of that stuff. Hell, I didn't even have any of that stuff until into my 30s. The project that I worked on with my writing partner, because my writing partner, who was straight and married with kids, loves relationship stuff, but he, his work has resonated with the LBGTQ. And so we wrote a, we wrote a show about, a, we call him a gay superhero, just because it's a gay guy who's not struggling with who he is. Right. But he helps everybody else understand who they are. You know, when Love, Simon came out, I actually rented a theater in Cleveland. I had said it's worth all the money in the world if, because the Gay and Lesbian Center sponsored it and actually the director helped me rent it out. I told you I was, my, as my friends would say, obsessed. But for me, I was like, if this can just help one kid feel better about themselves, because I was way suicidal growing up. So like, if there's one kid that can just see something and feel better about himself or relate, I'm like, it's totally worth it. So like for me, it, especially with all these platforms, I think it would be, I would love for that show to get made. I have had so many friends over the years from so many backgrounds, but my gay friends, I, I always felt so sad for so many of them because they didn't feel like they fit either in their own family or in their own situation. What you see so often in productions or whatever is they're really conflicted or they're really angry about it. But all, the majority of my friends, they were jocks. They were athletes and, and what other people didn't ascribe as gay characteristics. And that was almost harder for them because they really struggled with this like, well, I'm into this, or, or if, I, if I'm into this, I can't do this and come out and, and be who I really am. And it's like, it was such a conflict and it was so hard to be the friend that knew and just want you to just feel comfortable in your own skin and say, look, I love you for who you are. There's got to be enough other people, and if there's ignorant people, let's let them be whoever they are. But that's easy for me to say, because at the end of the day, I went home 
and didn't have to take 100% of it. I could be the support guy. The best quote that I really have heard from it, and I'm going to screw it up and paraphrase it, but, you know, what if the world doesn't like who you are? So it's like you try, you're trying to like yourself, but then what if they don't like you, right? And then you feel like you can't take any of that stuff back. I mean, listen, I, I, when we did, in the first season of the reboot, we had an episode with Mark. And, you know, it wasn't really until the second season that he was more or less we confirmed when that episode was done. I talked to Sarah about it that following Monday at the talk. It crushed me watching it in a positive way. Like so happy. And like, I love Ames so much. He's like the, the nicest guy. Like he's always so happy. And, I'm, and the way he plays Mark makes me happy hoping that there's like parents at home that if they have a kid that's like that at that age, that right. like there's something relatable to it. No, I, I, I love that part of, of that character. The final apologetic, and that's yeah, why. Unapologetic like. and proud of who he is. Yeah. He says, this is who I yeah. am, and th I like sparkly things. I like, this makes me feel good. And if people don't like it, they don't like it, right? Yeah. And, and it's beautiful to see a family support him in that. That's yeah. the part of it is, I always hope secretly that DJ is going to go to bat for him. You know, some of the scripts and projects I've pitched or storylines I've pitched have been that because I think there's a parallel there between some of what Mary may feel and being in an interracial relationship or being the kid who grew up with some problems or some hesitations or some preconceived notions yeah. and overcoming them in your life. You know, for me, one of the spec scripts I wrote, that was the huge portion of it is, hey, hold out because some people will catch up to you and will grow up and just be you because you, you are special as you are. I always say like, you know, women and, and gay folks and folks of color and, and everything. It's like, we're all kind of in that together. It's the same thing. It's just, it's all the same reactions. It's just one person's gay, one person's all that. And it's, oh yeah, with, 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 with that parallel totally makes sense on the show. Okay, I'm going to give you the big, the big rundown for my final questions. You ready? Yes. Okay, the things I ask everyone. Go. What's the first thing you want to see on a call sheet? What's the first thing I want to see on a call sheet? Yeah. The, the out time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then what's the last thing you want to see on a call sheet? The out time. <laughs> yeah, so crazy out time, right? <laughs> yeah. okay. I mean, because there's some days, there's some days where I'll, I mean, it, it just depends on the show. Because obviously if I'm doing the, sh the voice, I know I'm done at seven. But you know, there's some shows where you're like, you get there and they're like, oh, we've added two more shows today. So your out time is now seven o'clock and not four. And you're like, uh, really? That makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Okay. Now, what is the thing that would be your favorite thing to see at craft service? My favorite thing at craft service. Oh, if you have a cappuccino machine, like a real cappuccino machine. Not this stupid, put a pot in, it's a cap, and it hasn't been cleaned in 10 seasons. <laughs> but, but the real now, listen, honestly, our crafty on the Connors is one of the best. Yeah. They've got that awesome cappuccino espresso machine, and it's money. And, and I like at the end of my show, because I don't eat most of the time, I get, we have good kombucha or iced coffee on the show, too. And I, that's how I end the show. So those are the two things. Okay, now what do you hate to see at craft service? 
like, like Thanksgiving dinner. I'm going with specific food. I don't know if that, but like. No, I love it. There's certain shows I work on and they think you want to, I mean, listen, it's hard because you're always providing meals, but like, I'm not eating a huge Thanksgiving dinner before, on my lunch break before I go to work. How do you define success? They can't all be easy questions. No, there's so many layers to that because I, str I struggle with that. Mm -hmm. Because in some people's eyes, success, I guess, is just in the eye of the beholder. Because I look at somebody like, you know, I look at someone like a friend of mine who reoccurs on two shows and is now a series regular on one. And I'm like, oh my God, you're so successful, but he doesn't think he is. And then I talk to people who would kill to be a warm-up guy. And there's always people who would kill to be in your position. God, I mean, I don't know. I guess success would just be being happy doing what you do and with who you are. Let's use that criteria. Yeah. Being happy about who you are and what you yeah. do. Yeah. How do you measure up to your definition? Ew, what are you, Dr. Phil? Um, I mean, by my definition, I would be very successful. I think you're very successful. Thank you. Did my therapist call you? Did my, is my therapist giving you the money for this week? He's like, <laughs> listen, I want you to reel in Bill and let him realize some things. No, I, I'll tell you from my perspective, right? If you'll let me. Like, it's I mean, listen, I do get I'm very successful. I have been very lucky. So I guess looking at that, I'm successful in that aspect. But for me, I'm just not satisfied. Well. Here, here's what I'll say. Having watched you in so many capacities, I think the thing I take away from you is that you have an incredibly complex job, that you're one of the most diverse performers. Your ability to weave between projects and between things is inspiring. And I always think, for me too, is lots of people go, oh, you've been hugely successful. I have so much more I want to do that I totally can, can share that that sentiment with you, but I've watched you save nights and make people's lives easier. You know, we went out to dinner with a group of audience members this year, and the impact that you've had on them is so meaningful. For me, part of success is the impact you have on others' lives, and if you can make other people's lives better or easier. And what I've always been struck with watching you through all these different shows, uh, I've actually been at a couple of other shows that I've seen you work and been in the back and you've been running crazy. So I, I try not to, you know, cause I, I weave my way in and out of sound stages and try to know as much as I can about every different process. Cause all of the different areas I write from reality and contestant shows to really scripted things, you have this amazing ability to excel in every environment and to see good in people and utilize that good and make experiences that are life altering. And man, I admire that so much in you. And I'm so excited for what's coming for you because I believe that a lot of the stuff you want is still coming. You make days better and I admire you so much. It's one of the reasons you're one of the first people I call. Well, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. And, and again, I'm the youngest dinosaur. I've been in this business for 30 plus years. I see your gray. Yeah, see it? You know, I've earned it. <laughs> right. Look at this hair. This is eight weeks. I'm like, oh, my God. A friend of mine saw me today, and he goes, you're really gray. I'm like, I don't have any product in it because the shine <laughs> reflects the gray. Uh, we've earned it. That's the beauty of it, right? Yep.
what's the one thing you want on every single set? Laughter. Oh, it's a good choice. But like, I'll walk onto a set and I'll be able to tell what the vibe is. Like, for instance, everyone knows I'm such a Cleveland fan. I'll walk onto the set at the talk. If the Cavs got killed by the Lakers, I'll walk out there and everybody is waiting for me because they want to say some stuff to me. But I also don't let that go past me because I understand that changes the vibe of the room, you know? Yeah, I mean, I almost wore a Steelers jersey just to mess with you today. I know. I was I was going to wear a Browns one until you told me not to wear a... Well, you know, logos, you know. So, but I, I was. But that's the beauty of knowing people. Good friends can come in and tease each other. And to know that you're going to get it and to give it and to share and to engage and to do it boldly in front of people that disarms people. I think that's... A I love getting it back from people. People can shut me up. And people love being able to shut me up. So that's, that's one of everybody's favorite things, especially when the Browns sucking this year. Trust me, everybody loved every moment of that because of the hype we had. Yeah. But yeah, it's because it, if you have that, everything else falls into place. Okay, now what's the one thing you would eliminate from a set? I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. I just wish that it wasn't so divided. Mm-hmm. I think on certain shows, I think on the Connors, it's a little bit different. But like if you work on a show that has like a different crew than production, you don't get that mesh of people. If everybody just had a chance to really know each other, I guess. That makes production special, having worked on a lot of different things. Yeah. Working on the crew side, sometimes you're so far disconnected that you don't get to know some of these people and you have way more in common. Way more. You get to share. It's hard because even on like, you know, like on the talk, just to use that as an example, we're live and we're done at 12, right? That means the crew and everybody, they've been there since 6.45, and, and the producers get there that early too. Producers still have a full day. Everybody else is done. And, you know, you're in different buildings and stuff. So, like, on Bonnie Hunt's talk show, and I just use this as an example, when we were done at 6 or 7 o'clock at night, everybody was done. So we all used to go out. And we, we, you really got to know people. If somebody had a show, we would go to their show. Whereas now, if I have a stand-up show, people live in Hermosa Beach. They're not going to hang around out here for, you know, whereas if the show was done, they'd be like, oh, I'll come to the show. I've got, you know, to help me save time on traffic. You know what I mean? Like it's, our, our, our industry is just weird. But I, I wish... Um, I don't know. I like everyone to be friends. I used to always be the party person that put all that stuff together. Well, because I'm kind of, that was kind of my job. Amy's button really sums it up. I think we just take TV too seriously. What's the best gift you've ever gotten on a project? Oh, man. I still wear these Uggs that I got season one from, from the hosts on the talk. And that's, they're 11 years old. And they are the most comfortable slippers. And I wear those dang things all the time. How do you want the people who worked with you to remember you? That I, that I made them laugh. I mean. That's, that's what you wanted to have on a set, right? On every yeah. set? Like, sometimes we do two shows. And in between shows, there's just times where you just start talking to audience members. We are having so much fun that all the crew guys and people from backstage come out to watch what's going on. Yeah. Because they hear everybody laughing. When they talk about that stuff with me months later, 
it actually means a lot because I was like, that's awesome that for that day, like all this stuff happened and, you know, they always say, I walk the line. Like, I really walk the line. I mean, that's, that. I'll, I'll tell you, from coming, <laughs> visiting and being there, right? There's something special about being backstage, especially between things and hearing genuine laughter. Yeah. Hearing, hearing people who can't contain it, right? Because there's nothing more beautiful in a workplace than when people are just genuinely, authentically happy. Yeah, for sure. What's the legacy you want your loved ones to take from your life? Oh, that I was generous. I don't know, that's a hard one for me because I don't feel like a lot of my, friend, my family's in my life, but that's not their fault. It's just because I'm so disconnected and I'm so out here. Mm-hmm. I, try to have, I try to get back and do as much as I can with them, but I also try to have fun with them and have, I like it, try to have experiences. I love, I love your social media. I want to see that I was successful. Because they also all believed in me. Because I was that kid growing up. The loud, crazy, always putting on a show, doing stupid stuff, singing, whether it was good or bad. Well, I just thank you so much for, for allowing me this opportunity to, to ask you all these questions, to kind of let people see the amazing part of, and complexity of what your job is that I think so often people don't understand and even audience members i think maybe even take it for granted it's so much more than people realize and it's a job that really matters you are a host within a production that makes things run so i thank you for for all the time and all the fun and and thank you bill hopefully we'll be making more tv soon yes thank you so much for listening to this podcast and i can't wait to share more